Bonjour! And welcome to the Gallimorphy. Thank you for joining us again. This is episode 35 with my lovely friend, Mr. Nick. Salut, ça va? Ah, bon. That's the extent of my French. Um, <laughs> un petit pois. There is a reason why we're talking, or rather butchering the French language in this very specific way. And yes, we are back. Sorry about the wait. We've had a bit of a Christmas break. Uh, stretching into a New Year's break. Uh, and then even stretching into a sort of Burns night break as well, I think. Yes, yeah, so we covered all the major New Year holidays. Yeah. Get them out of the way. So yeah, it's, it's good to be back. And we're back with an absolutely... Corking episode. I thought you were going to use a good French word then. Bon. <laughs> Magnifique. I, I, you know, when I was at school, I, I didn't do French. I did uh, German and Spanish. So my French is kind of Del Boy French. I'm sure all of us look forward to hearing that. So I'm going to turn this music on. Yeah. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. yeah. Picture, nice. picture yourself in a, in a quaint little vineyard in the south of France. Yeah, am I in a, um, a Citroën 2CV? They didn't exist back. Then. Playing my accordion. You're, you're in a, you're in a, you can have an accordion. Okay. You're in a, you're in a vineyard in the south of France in the yeah. 19th century. Yes. Okay. The sun is shining. Yeah. The garlic is blooming, and the peasants all around you are screaming in despair. <laughs> peasants are screaming in despair. Yeah. Okay. Because these picturesque vineyards that you see in a few short years will all be devastated and gone. Oh dear. And it's all thanks to one tiny little insect. We are going to be looking at the great French wine blight, otherwise known as the great European wine blight. French wine has been going strong for centuries and is obviously still a major part of uh, modern day life. You know, in 2022, it was estimated that over 230 million hectolitres, and for anyone wondering what a hectolitre is, that's roughly equivalent to 100 litres or 133 standard wine bottles. I was going to call it, why don't you call it a kilolitre, but that would be let's a thousand litres, wouldn't it? Let's not get into the uh, the merits of the metric system. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, let, that's an old other debate. But yes, yeah, so 100 litres is one hectolitre. So in 2022 alone, the worldwide 230 million hectolitres of wine were produced, which is actually down on the year before. France alone produced 47.2 million of that. Mm. So that's quite a, it's quite a substantial chunk. You know, glug glug, as they say. That's the French term for it, is Yes, it? it's the French term. But yes, the world, though, very nearly, very nearly came close to seeing French wine go extinct. And this was all because of one tiny little North American invader who developed an intense and destructive first for the French, or rather the European grapevine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I kind of, I like, I like that for once it's, for once it's something from the new world causing a, a bunch of problems for the europeans rather than the other way around it makes a nice change doesn't it yeah and this bug was uh, was would later come to be named and we'll, we'll talk about that phylloxera and it was thought to have arrived around 1858 in europe anyway and it's yeah. first recorded in france in 1863 in the province of languedoc and caused havoc for the next three decades in fact it's such a pervasive problem that it still exists today but we also still have french wine and european wine why not uh, pour yourself a glass of your favourite wine or uh, Dr Pepper if you're an uncultured South Yon- London yob uh, and join us on this hey, journey. It's got, it's got natural fruit elements in it. There's no difference between it and wine, in, in my opinion. It is, it is the champagne of um, fizzy fruit-flavoured drinks. It is, yes. The cognac of, uh, <laughs> yeah. I would say, rather than champagne. The cognac? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but... Yes. Um, so let's we... all get nicely sourced for, yeah. for the next half an hour to an hour. I think that would help, wouldn't it? Should we get 
I don't have any wine right now. I suppose I probably would have been appropriate to get some in. It probably would have been, yeah. Oh, never mind. Um, anyway, um, shall we, we... We all know what wine is, don't we? But just to humour our listeners, shall we have a little bit of a backstory on what actually wine is? So wine, it's not just that noise that comes out of your mouth. <laughs> uh, wine, in its simplest form, is, is a beverage, and it's made from fermented grape juice. That uh, doesn't sound very appetising. It doesn't. But then, when you look at a lot of uh, foods and drinks that we look at, when you break it down to its simplest terms, none of it sounds particularly appetising. That is very true. I mean, you were telling me earlier about how you were drinking coffee that had been fermented through a cat's anus. You know, it's it's like, you know, what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, I had a, a boiled hen ovulation. It's... <laughs> Or, you know, some, some cow juice. Or some cow juice, yeah. Mm. But, yes, uh, wine is a fermented grape juice. And, but to stop at that definition would be to do it a bit of a disservice and to ignore a lot of rich history, culture and science that is interwoven into every bottle that you and I drink. Well, I drink, not you. You, you don't drink it, but we'll gloss over that. I, I drink wine. You drink wine. I'm just, I'm just not... You know, it's. I always, I always, I'm always reminded of that of that quote from Peep Show when Jez takes, I think is it Big Sue's out for dinner and she orders a bottle of Bollinger or something. Yeah, and he's like forty quid. It's like, oh, yeah, obviously it's not delicious like Coke. And I, I exactly agree with him at that point. It's just like, yeah, it is. But I mean, sometimes when when you're at restaurants, it, it's it, you. There are these sort of weird expectations, aren't there, that you have on yourself that you think, oh no, I can't get a pint. I I should order wine. It feels rude to have a pint with this fancy food that i've bought so you end up and you're like i don't understand what any of these bottles mean so you know i, I, I can't name a fancy french wine off the top of my head but uh it's uh, a pickpool a pickpool i've had that it's a white isn't it it's a white it's a, it's a very nice white. It's, it's one of the whites i enjoy yeah a pickpool it sounds a lot like puckpool which is a little seaside town but it's got nothing to do with that mm. anyway um the process of winemaking begins with the harvesting of grapes and these grapes are then crushed to extract the juice which is known as must and the must is then fermented usually with the help of yeast and the yeast consumes the natural sugars in the grape juice and converts it into alcohol and you can skip a load of stuff after them but effectively there's your wine tasty yeah and uh for centuries all of this wine came from the vitici vinifera which is the latin name for the european vine ah so there were lots of different like names for them, lots of different types. But also, crucially, they all shared one massive weakness against the insect we all discuss. Yeah. But like many great, uh, proud European traditions, wine isn't actually from Europe. The, uh, so originally, we believe, we originally think that the, the grapes and the act of winemaking uh, come from sort of the, the Middle East, kind of Iran, Turkey, Georgia, that kind of part of the world. And we're looking at about five or 6,000 BC seem to be the earliest records of this. Um, they've actually found ancient pottery shards, uh, which um, provide some kind of evidence of what was going on at this time in human history. Um, the art of winemaking was then embraced by uh, Mediterranean civilizations, um, most notably uh, the Romans, who then brought it to Western Europe and so on and so on, and then you find the situation we're in right now. Throughout history, it has held a lot of cultural value as well. So the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans 
all held wine in high esteem, uh, using it in religious ceremonies and trading it across their vast empires. And each culture has left its mark on the history of wine, uh, contributing to the development of different grape varieties and different winemaking techniques. Mm. Uh, and then the age of exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries marked a new chapter in the history of wine as European explorers set sail for the new world. And with them, they brought wine and uh, European uh, grapes and winemaking techniques and established them in the new world. They actually found in America there were Native American grapes. They turned their nose up at these at the time as, as obviously inferior to the native French grapes, but. Uh, from its humble beginnings in ancient Georgia, uh, Iran, Persia, that sort of area, uh, to the sprawling vineyards of the New World, the history of wine is kind of a testament to um, uh, humanity's love of, of good drinks that can get you nicely hammered. There's something classy about being an alcoholic when you just drink wine, isn't there, compared to, say, like scotch or whiskey or... It's a very... It's like an accepted level of alcoholism, which shouldn't be... It's a very accepted. middle class kind of alcoholism. It's like the Waitrose of alcoholism is I, red wine. Yeah. Maybe because it's... I did, uh, this, again, is just a stereotype, but is it because wine makes you a bit more sleepy? Whereas like, if you're drinking like beer or scotch, you're getting a bit rowdy. I wonder if it's got something to do with the French connection, you know, that, that we... <laughs> We associate France and French culture with with um, class and with style and fashion and that sort of thing. Whereas maybe we associate, you know, Scottish whiskey drinking culture with, with less desirable traits. If If you say to somebody in the UK that you are a wine drinker, that comes with certain assumptions that maybe wouldn't travel if you said you were a beer drinker. Yeah, there's always a sense of awkwardness when you go into a pub... Or a Weatherspoons, and everyone around you is ordering like a pint, and you say, oh, "I'll have a white wine, please." There's a certain, there's a certain <laughs> stigma in that. Just people give you funny looks. Yeah. But anyway, yes. So wine is as French as apple pie is American. So by the 1840s, wine was about a sixth of the French state revenue. Oh wow! That's, so that a sixth right. of that was tax state revenue. It was the second major export after textiles, and a third of the population worked in the industry. It's oh, a okay. huge, huge amount. Yeah. Just coming back to your mention of French imports to, to the New World. Mm. So despite attempts to grow European vines in America, particularly areas like Virginia, New York and Florida, where French settlers settled, they all just seem to wither and die. Mm. And no one can really figure out why. Yeah. Because, you know, as you said, American grape varieties grew there. But obviously they were taste. Apparently, according to all the French, <laughs> they tasted like gek. They were horrible. Yeah, they were um, mad. But there were a number of grapes that they really loved the look of. So uh, there's one called Isabella from Southern Carolina. There was Catawaba in Ohio. A one called uh, Black Spanish or Cigar Box, uh, which made a particularly rich, dark red color wine. But it just didn't taste very nice. But they did produce impressive vines. Mm. So often the French would would bring back the, the, the vines and grow them in their gardens because they looked impressive. Mm. They just didn't produce particularly nice grapes or wine. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest grape crops in the world is, is the American Concord grape, which is that kind of really big purple grape that you see in pictures. Mm. Um, Actually, that's going to play a key role later on in the story. The Concord. Yeah. Ah, but I, I think most of it gets used just for making grape juice. Mm. Um, so there was a great deal of snobbery regarding wine. Shock horror. It's the French and it's wine. Uh, they looked down on every other variety of wine, whether it be, you know, American, Italian, Spanish. Mm. American wine was seen as far too savage and lacked flavour. 
But coming back to the vines, why are they important? Mm. It's because these, these vines are obviously imported and they would present a massive test for the French wine industry. Uh, that was kind of like a prelude to the even more catastrophic horror that this this tiny little aphid that we talked about at the top will mm. produce. So um, the Isabella, for instance, was uh, a vine that, as we said, decorated people's gardens. But it also happened to be a carrier for a particularly nasty fungus, Boeadium. And this was a horrible fungus that sort of spread quite rapidly across Europe. It turned vines sort of powdery with mildew, withered them and, and, and gave off a very, very distinct mouldy smell. Yeah. This arrived in 1845 in France, and by 1854, French wine production had dropped from 39 million hectolitres to just 11 million. Oh, it had okay. it decimated sort of region, uh, the region of wine. But thankfully, science prevails, as it did over previous threats. So I think there was also a, a, a particularly nasty caterpillar. <laughs> that, that, that was a problem in a few decades earlier, which they figured out you could just kill by pouring boiling water over the vines. I think my nephew's got that book, A Particularly Nasty Caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the only way to deal with, with this fungus was to douse everything with sulphur. Oh, okay. So it was kind of like the first sort of massive insecticide in a way. I bet that smelled nice. And thankfully, France was coming into its own sort of industrial revolution. So things were being mechanised, you had railways being laid down, you had um, new machinery and equipment. So they, did, they built these massive bellows, worked by labourers day and night to sort of coat and dust all the vines in sulphur mm. to cure them. And by 1863, it was more or less gone. So, you know, the French overcame one villain, but this was the first of, of an American intruder because the fungus was later obviously discovered to have come from America. It was, was travelled on the vines. Yeah. The American vines themselves obviously were slightly immune to it because they were a hardier stock. Yeah. So American vines are quite unique because they, they have to suffer through quite sweltering summers and then quite freezing winters. Mm. And they have a different uh, biological makeup to European vines. But one curious result of, of the sulphur dusting was it actually improved the flavour of the wine. <laughs> oh, right. What the sulphur did? <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it also cut the risk of harvest loss, even though sulphur is quite a noxious chemical. And it started this trend of trying to add sulphur across the world. So, you, you know, uh, in, even in Spain, you know, the poorest people didn't have access to sulphur because it was quite expensive. So they would just take dust from the road and try and coat it on their crops oh, okay. so it, you know it costs nearly a hundred francs to treat one hectare uh, thankfully child labor kept that cost down oh good good old child labor yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> however it did not escape the attention of the people that had dealt with the fungus that american grafts or specific american plants or hybrids because mm. at this time the Americans were trying to sort of hybridize plants to sort of improve the taste you had french wine growers experimenting as well and they all came to France because France was the centre of wine culture. The mm. centre of the... France was the wine, ca wine capital of the world. Uh, one of those uh, growers was Leo Lalleman, who would become a major player in the fight against the bug. Um, he was a wine grower from Bordeaux. Yeah. And in 1860, along with fellow wine grower Gaston Basile, is largely credited uh, with the discovery that when European vines are grafted with suitable American rootstock, they became resistant to the fungus. But no one cared. <laughs> I, because by the eight, you know, but they dealt with it with sulfur, yeah. So they didn't need to graft these horrible American vines onto their precious European roots. It must have felt a bit like sacrilege. They've been trying for ages to try and get wine to taste nice, yeah, with American rootstock, and it just wasn't working. And, and some of these French vineyards had been, you know, going for hundreds of years from generations. So 
to kind of to come along and then go uh, actually we're going to take all this and we're going to we're going to taint it with these american vines it's probably not not a decision to be made lightly one notable person at the time dr jules guillot conducted a massive survey of the wine industry around the 1860s commenting it was in a golden age that wine is good for the health it's good for the economy and we are the envy of the world that was all about to come crashing down quite violently <laughs> And it all began in a little town called Rocky Mer in Languedoc mm. on a, a street called 21 Rue Long, now Rue Placide Capot. And it was all the fault of a merchant named Borty. Borty? Borty. Oh, so we actually, we can trace it back to the merchant who brought it over. This was, this was ground zero. But it, basically in 1862, he planted some American vines alongside some European ones after his American friend, a Mr. M. Carl, sent him a shipment of New York vines to grow and test. Mm. And so like a lot of momentous events at the time, it never really feels like anything's happening. But little did know that Borty was about to ignite a powder keg that would forever <laughs> change wine in Europe. So by the next summer, a village south of where his little vineyard in this street was located had begun to show signs of disease. A mysterious disease that no one seemed to understand where it come from and why it was killing the plants. You know, leaves turned yellow, their edges turned red. They had these little blisters all over them and soon they dried up and became little more than husks. And when they dug them up, the roots just sort of disintegrated. There was no visible sign of a fungus or, or an insect or any sort of disease. What's interesting is that obviously his, his little vineyard was a couple of miles away from where the first other outbreak was in Pushu. Mm. And there's an interesting reason for that that we will get to. But by 1865, the whole town was affected. It went through a couple of cycles of summer being terrible. Winter seemed to stop it. And then it reawoke in spring. They tried all the old tricks, sulfur, lime. Nothing seemed to work. Hmm. And soon it was spreading so fast. It was all across the Midi, which is the regions of Aquitaine, Provence, Languedoc, massive wine regions. Hmm. I've, actually, I've actually been there. I went on a marathon. I remember this. You, you said you went on a marathon and at all the, um, the pit stops, they gave you a glass of wine or something. Uh, uh, no, they, they only started giving you wine, I think, once you reached about 15 or 20 miles. Before then, it was orange juice. Oh, okay. But yeah, it was. I ran with a group of friends who were very keen to do that. I did. I, I have no interest in wine. I just wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to do a marathon. And then after 20 miles, I think they started giving you oysters and steak, which is not really something you should be eating after, after running 20 miles in a marathon. Oh, was it a nice part of the world? It was lovely, but I would never drink wine from that region ever again because of what I saw the other runners doing in the vineyards. Oh, right. During the run. I'm sure. I will leave to the imagination. I'm sure they wash the wines. Before. <laughs> the, the, I'm sure they wash the grapes. I haven't done a marathon. I have driven through that region and it is very scenic. It's a very pretty part of the world. It is. It is very beautiful. And um, I, I, th I fully recommend it. But yes, so this whole region was 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 suffering outbreaks hmm. and they sort of occurred in sort of an, almost like an oil spill. Yeah, is, is what has been described by one author. So, you know, like how when you splatter oil on the floor, there's like one solid chunk and then there's like flecks. Yeah, that's kind of how it sort of started and then emerged and sort of grew out like that. Oh, right. And there will be, there will, there's a reason for that, which we will come to. Again, no one could understand why. Because when they dug up the dead plants, they found nothing. Oh. And that was the problem. They were digging up dead plants. Yeah. Uh, they didn't know at the time, but the culprit was actually uh, Phylloxera vestatrix, which is a name that translates to the devastator of vines. It was a tiny aphid-like insect that was inadvertently brought to France and um, ended up kind of ruining everyone's day for a little bit in the 19th century 
The microscopic pest, which was, as we said, native to the eastern United States, feeds on the roots and leaves of grapevines, and it is still around today. It was never truly beaten. The symptoms uh, of the blight were both sudden and devastating. Initially, a vine or two in the middle of a vineyard would start to yellow and droop and eventually die. The following year, neighbouring vines would also begin to show uh, signs of the illness. Within two years, the diseased vines could be found rotting uh, all the way from top to bottom, right down to the roots. And over just a few seasons, entire vineyards collapsed, leaving many French families scrambling to make ends meet. Uh, Philoxifer vestatrix thrived in European vineyards, uh, where there was no natural immunity to it, and gradually spread from its initial point of introduction. The aphid attacked the roots of the grapevines and fed on the sap, causing serious damage in the process. Uh, they also stunted the growth of the vines, turning the leaves yellow and causing them to eventually fall off. So it, it was pretty nasty. What made things harder was that once the vine had withered and died, the aphids uh, left the vine to find new ones. So they would dig up the old dead plant and they wouldn't find any traces of them. Yes, it was it was a remarkable insect because it had so many different stages but uh, as you said, they were underground, but they did actually start on the leaf. So there's like a life cycle where there, there would be a, a, a generation that grew up on the leaves and then they would sort of trickle down either by gravity or just migrating downwards towards the roots uh, during winter where they'd sort of hibernate. And then during the spring, they'd come back up again. There'd be some winged versions of them and then they'd sort of infect the plant all over again. So it was it was a very clever and pernicious foe. But yeah, no one, no one thought to check a healthy plant. Mm. So they would like, so all these plants were dying. And they were like, why are they dying? And they couldn't see why they were dying. Because the way they burrow into a leaf when mm. they're on the surface is that one of the, the stages of the life cycle burrows into the leaf and then sort of creates a cocoon using the leaf yeah. around it. And then it would lay eggs within that cocoon within the leaf, which would then produce up to like 500 offspring yeah. on one leaf. So it was, it was a particularly clever, clever bug. And the only reason they discovered the bug mm. was because uh, it was actually serendipity as well. <laughs> in, in, in the weirdest, horrible, most serendipity. Because we enter one of the heroes of the story, and that is Jules Emile Planchon, botanist and former apprentice pharmacist, who was appointed by a local committee in the Midi to investigate, along with some other, other people, including a fellow called Liechtenstein. He quickly deduced the cause was insects. After he was pickaxing an unhealthy soil and accidentally struck a, a healthy root. Mm. And he unearthed this sort of orangey root that was covered in a cluster of, of insects and eggs. And he, he quickly sort of came to the conclusion it was either an aphid or a passeron. So Planchon, after discovery of these bugs, was pretty sure that they were the cause of the blight. Mm. Paris didn't seem to care about the fact that this blight was spreading across... <laughs> across the midi hmm. they were too busy initially celebrating napoleon's birth and in fact many argued yeah it's just another like bug or it's just another fungus that will overcome we don't have to worry too much well, they had they had kind of i guess done this before not long earlier that the whole issue with the fungus and it had been dealt with the sulfur so and that was quite a success for them so you could see why maybe they would be a little bit overconfident Planchon, though, they, they probably should have listened to him because he was a very distinguished botanist in his day. Um, he'd had a doctorate of science at the University of Montpellier, which is a very highly regarded university at the time. Uh, he'd also worked at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Kew, 
um, which is still going today. And he had worked as a, a teacher in Nancy um, before becoming head of the Department of Botanical Sciences at the University of Montpellier. So he, he wasn't just some, like, gardener who, who'd had a few ideas. He, he was an actual professional botanist. Mm, which is exactly why he was appointed to the committee. Mm. So he was going around the South investigating, taking samples where he could, studying the insect. And he and his colleagues were summoned to Bordeaux uh, in July of 1869. Some 300 kilometres away, an outbreak had occurred. Now, this was incredible. 300 kilometres mm. for an insect to travel is, is mad. <laughs> so he, they couldn't figure out quite how it had spread. Um, enter our yank-loving friend Leo, mm. who happened to live in that region. His vineyard had reported outbreaks earlier, and it didn't take long for the sort of pieces to come together, because his colleague, uh, Mr. Lichtenstein, also called Jules, having read an article on similar aphid trees in New York, and he kind of put the two and two together that this was the same bug there. So you had the sort of beginnings that the two, that the American connection was there, but it took a very long time for France to accept this outside of this small group of scientists. Mm. And no one really knows why. I think it was just French stubbornness. From about 1869, the aphid would spread slowly across Europe. It would begin like a 20 to 30 year march where it would engulf Europe. But luckily, by July 1870, the French government finally woke up. The situation was too big to ignore, especially now it's starting to affect their tax revenue, which is the okay. main reason. Um, so a commission on the on the bug was created and shared by the leading scientist of the time, the chemist Jean-Baptiste Dumas. Very French name. It is a very French name. A 20,000 gold franc reward was promised to any... I won't talk like that for this. <laughs> <laughs> was promised to anyone who could create a cure. Of course, all the while, while this was happening, France was actually engaged in quite a bitter and destructive war with Prussia. Okay, a bit of a distraction then. Hmm. Uh, this this war would eventually result in Napoleon III surrendering and a new French re Republic being reclaimed. It's quite a bit of stuff going on while the French wine industry was in this chaos. Yeah, you, you can see why maybe they weren't giving it their full attention. Why this is important is because while this was happening, Paris was surrounded and besieged. And in Paris was a professor, uh, Signoret, mm. who had been corresponding with Plachon. Now, Signoret was quite important because he was he was quite a respected sort of scientist, entomologist, and uh, he was tasked with sort of in studying and inspecting the bugs. And he was sort of breeding them in lab conditions to see how they affected roots. So when you put the bugs in a glass chamber with a root, yeah. quite a lot of the bugs would die on the outskirts because the root was just consumed by so many of the other bugs who were just greedily and thirstily devouring the roots. Yeah. So these bugs didn't just like the European vine, they, it was like crack to them. Oh, they were drawn to it. They were drawn to it intensely. Mm -hmm. American vines are a bit different to French French vines or European vines. They have a sort of uh, different biological makeup. They developed, over over millennia, they developed defences like a cork-layered structure, yeah. which prevents the disintegration of them. They had natural sort of chemical repellents. European vines didn't have this. Is it, so the American vines would have evolved alongside these aphids, so they would have mm. adapted to them in time. Whereas exactly. the French vines, this was new to them. They had no prior experience with these aphids. Exactly. But Signore is important because he was firmly of the belief that the aphids weren't the cause, they mm. were a symptom. And he was firmly believed that it was, it was, it was a climate reason. It was a soil reason. It, and that was what Jean-Baptiste Dumas also peddled. It was like a, he believed the aphids were a symptom, not the cause. How did he make the connection between, I mean, what, 
what was making the aphids a symptom of it? Were they just drawn to dying vines? Did he think he or? he thought it was yeah it was thought it was a soil issue, a climate issue that yeah. they'd had a few troubles in the previous years before, and that it was it was just a malady of the land rather than yeah. the actual the bug being the cause. But uh, I mentioned the siege, and what's interesting is through this, Paris was starved. They were eating dogs and cats and horses through it. You know, it was being bombed. He managed to keep these bugs alive all through the siege, mm. to the point where an American called Charles Riley, who had been helping Planchon to visit Signorade to talk about the bug, because he'd noticed these reports coming out of Europe about it, and he'd seen it before in America. Obviously, we've mentioned that he, he helped out Planchon in this, but he was quite a big player in his own name. Um, he was a British-born American entomologist uh, and also an artist, uh, and he was born in Chelsea in 1843. He was the son of a Church of England minister and was educated in Europe from a young age, uh, where he excelled at art and natural history. When his father died, uh, while he was still a child, he was brought back to England and continued his studies there. At the age of 17, Riley travelled to Illinois in the United States, where he found work as a labourer on a farm about 50 miles south of Chicago. In 1864, Riley left the farm for Chicago, where he worked for a leading agricultural journal called Prairie Farmer. Uh, and there he worked as a reporter, an artist, and later the editor of the entomological department. So Riley went to a vineyard near St. Louis, which was called Isidore Bush. And at this vineyard, he saw aphids on the roots of the plants, which he recognised as being the same aphids that Planchon believed to have been the cause of the blight over in France. So Riley travels to Paris in 1871, and despite the siege, Signoret has managed to keep his aphids alive. However, Signoret didn't believe that they were the cause, so Riley then travels to the south, where he meets Planchon, and he inspects the fields. He sees the aphids for himself, and he concludes that this has come from America. It's, it's been quite a few years now since this has started. It's growing, it's growing, it's, it's spreading further east, it's spreading further west, it's spreading further north. Inadequate strategies are being devised all the time to address it. You know, some vineyard makers even have resorted to flooding their vineyards. The Central Commission, which had been established, had, had produced a report but offered no solution other than to mass sterilise the ground. Like um, salting it. So they, uh, it was like uprooting and burning the surface. But the problem was they would only recommend this for vines that were dead. Yeah. So by this time, the, the bug had already moved on, and Planchon was like, this does nothing to address the healthy vines which are affected. No. Nevertheless, authorities pursued it and made it law in some areas. Hmm. Also, I mean, a grapevine, it, it takes a few years to actually grow one to the point where it's producing fruit. If you, if you sterilise your land and have to start from scratch, that can't be tenable for a lot of these sort of small winemakers, can it? No. And the problem was no one really knew how this insect worked. How it So for Planchon, the key thing was, how does this insect appear here and then appear like 50 miles away? Mm. It can't all be from imported American vines as it was in Bordeaux. Yeah. How is it spreading in this sort of weird pattern? So by 1872, the bright had spread all along the Herald Valley. Um, in some areas, it was fast and brutal. In other areas, it was slow. Uh, so they sort of concluded maybe it's proximity of vineyards, maybe it's soil condition. A lot of locals uh, also in, in areas that didn't get affected just yet believed that maybe God was protecting them. Mm. In fact, in some areas it was considered a mythical beast, wasn't real, and then the next week they would be consumed with it. 
Pinchon had seen descriptions of them being spread by land. There were reports of children watching little aphids march between between the, the vines. And he knew they were underground as well. Uh, but there must have been an airborne one. There must have been one with wings. But he was perplexed at how something so small could travel so far. And out of desperation, he sort of surmised in his notes, oh, maybe it's just the wind. Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> the wind was blowing the aphids yeah. miles off course, allowing them to infect different plants. Oh. Which is why you were getting that patchwork oil spill approach. Right. And then once they got into an area and they would spread out and advance really fast. Yeah. But unfortunately, Planchon, despite his prestige within MIDI, and he was from Montpellier originally, uh, he was regarded as little more than a beetle hunter by the by the Parisian <laughs> authorities. But France was also still dealing with the war. Uh, so he went on like a massive propaganda campaign. Mm. He would write loads of pamphlets that he would distribute throughout the MIDI and further, further north to hit back at theories that were blaming everything else other than the bug. Yeah. So there was one like... Uh, so the theory was uh, uh, that the uh, Signore clung to was that it was the degeneration of soil that was affecting affecting the vines rather than anything else. And he <laughs> quite, quite pithily came back to this and he said, like, by suggesting degeneration is to blame is like suggesting if a wolf eats a sheep... You do not say that the sheep has suddenly become predisposed to being eaten, <laughs> uh, which I thought was just very, very clever and very accurate. He said about trying to prove where the blight had come from, and it was America. Mm. Um, and he, 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 by doing this, he went back and investigated all the different reports, not just in France, but in Europe. So there was reports in Ireland, actually, where vines are being grown by some of the aristocracy. Mm. Um, and in England, there was a magazine called Gardener's Chronicle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very English, English thing, because there's a Victorian... Uh, a predilection for growing nice plants in gardens. Yeah, I mean that, that was sort of part of the problem that the Victorians were very keen on bringing interesting plants from across the world back home again. This wouldn't be the first time that uh, invasive species have been sort of brought along for the ride. Mm. Anyway, the, the Gardeners Chronicle were getting all these reports of their vineyards being affected by this blight, mm. um, which he then also put two and two together and realized it's the same thing and realized that actually it it definitely was something coming from america because they'd all had american imports however Borty, who we mentioned earlier would would accidentally admit his own guilt well i say accidentally he, he informed the editor of, of his local newspaper that he had imported 154 american vines uh, through a friend and that's how planchon discovered investigated that's where the outbreak had occurred that was where ground zero um, but he also concluded that Lalleman had most likely brought it to Bordeaux, which was 300 kilometres away. Mm. Although uh, Lalleman, although accused of spreading the blight and it still takes some of the blame today, vigorously denied this and invited a commission to investigate him. Unfortunately, the commission he was also a member of and it found him not guilty, right. <laughs> coincidentally. So, uh, you know, it led Planston to conclude that the outbreak had been caused by American vines that were aided by the advancements of technology. Mm. Because, you know, it was so much easier now to transport material more quickly so it didn't degrade. And the, um, I suppose, on a long sea voyage, the aphids may not have actually survived. No, no. But because it was now quicker to get things over, it, the aphids could survive the trip and then come to France and flourish. So, as we've suggested, the blight was a catastrophe uh, that reverberated far beyond the vineyards of France. Uh, sending shockwaves through the entire 
uh, economy and society. France itself is very proud of its winemaking industries. So something like this, which could bring it to its knees, was obviously quite a major issue. Economically, the blight was a disaster. Vineyard owners, who had once enjoyed a good amount of prosperity, uh, were now confronted with the harsh reality of all of their withering vines. The uh, financial issues were not just limited to them, though. Merchants, whose livelihoods depended on the wine trade, also saw their stocks deplete and their profits plummet. Uh, it also reached into the heart of industries related to wine production. Cooperages, uh, who make barrels. Similarly, glassblowers, who would have made the bottles the wine would be delivered in, also found themselves short on work. And then the transportation industry, which would transport the not only the finished wine, but also the materials. In the wine-producing communities, the vineyard was more than just a place of work. It was the, the heart of the community. And also, in many places, the, the sole source of income for the local working people. The blight effectively ripped the heart out of these communities. The vineyards, which were once the centre of them, now lay silent and abandoned. The loss of the vineyards was not just an economic disaster, but a social and a cultural tragedy. And I think that's something which maybe gets a little bit overlooked in a lot of sources about this. We focus on mm. the, the scientific side of things, the vines themselves. We think about you know, the wine as well. But there's also, wine was such a big industry in France. And it was so big in, in French communities as well. No, it really was. And it, it led to a lot of, so they had to start importing wine in. Yeah, which, I mean, must have been... A massive source of wounding pride. Yeah. It, it would be a bit like Scotland importing, you know, Indian whiskey. It would be... <laughs> and the worst thing is, this is when you start to get all the the snake oil salesmen appear, mm. selling their half a halfpenny cures that never work. So one cure was peddled by Louis Chamet of Lyon. He sold insecticide egress, which was both fatal and fertilising, he claimed, for only 36 francs, with its main ingredient being dried human urine. He was literally selling piss powder. Ammonia, I suppose, is used to make fertilisers? I don't know enough about the chemistry to know if you could use... It didn't work. No, okay. <laughs> it didn't work. Another chemist, also a vineyard owner, Baron Paul Finard, tried carbon bisulfide, mm. a highly volatile and noxious chemical that basically we used to vulcanise rubber. It achieved great success in killing the aphids, but he also wiped out half his vines. Okay, so kind of the nuclear approach there then. It also apparently induced psychosis in workers, so not, not, <laughs> not the best solution. It, it would distract them from their financial problems at least. Well, that was the other thing. It was also very expensive, which was the, oh, okay. the main reason they didn't want to try it. Yeah. But by 1874, the blight had reached far into the West, threatening cognac. Yeah. Which caused a bit of a panic with the British as well, because <laughs> they particularly <laughs> like cognac. Yeah. Vineyards suddenly became testing grounds for anything that would work. So between July 1872 and August 73, the local committee of the Midi arranged for a number of different tests for loads of different methods. I think 136 methods were tried in an experimental plot area uh, near Montpellier. Hmm. And they all gave them a score, and all of them basically got zero. Okay. Carbon bisulfide achieved the lowest score of minus five for being effective. <laughs> minus five? Yeah. Is that good? Yeah. So, they, so all of these scientific methods, they were throwing everything at it, which led to the commission originally set up by the French government in Paris, upping the prize to 300,000 francs mm -hmm. in July 1874. People were starting to come around to the idea that it was the wine. The wine blight was being caused by the insect, but not the chief scientist Dumas, who still maintained it was a climate issue. 
proposals followed in from all around the world hmm. once the reward went up that high. Almost <laughs> 700 different procedures and suggestions went to the Ministry of Agriculture. Yeah. Not a single one worked. There was sort of a glimmer of hope thanks to uh, a fellow called Louis Fachon. He set up a sort of paddy's field style system, sort of drowned the aphids slightly. But he also started planting vines in his sandy areas and finding that the silica-rich sand actually killed them. Oh, okay. So the, the vines seem to thrive. And this is, this is, there's, a, there's a good scientific reason for this. Mm. It's because when, when it rains, it retains the water, so it drowns them. Oh, okay, because they live underground. Yeah, and then it traps them underneath it as well. Mm. This sparked a rush for yeah. everyone planting in sand. There wasn't enough sand to cope with the, the quantity and demand needed for the industry that you just talked about collapsing. Yeah. And they also began importing American vines because some people were finally starting to listen to Planchon yeah. and Riley and other people and Lalleman saying that American vines will save you. Unfortunately, no one knew how to grow them. Mm. And the vines they imported just had more aphids on them. So yeah. it just caused a bit of a bit of a chaos even more. I think I, think I read also that um, the soils of California and Texas where a lot of the American wine industry was based, it's very different to the soils of France. Yes, yes, it's limestone-based. Yeah, Europe. so the plants which were adapted to the California soils, when you plant them in France in the traditional wine-growing regions, they don't thrive because they haven't evolved for those soils. So there's a certain amount of adaptation that needs to be done. That's exactly it. So uh, Pachon was actually sent on an, ex uh, an expedition to America in 1873 to try and figure out how to stop it. Um, he returned um, after touring some of these vineyards uh, where he had also sampled American wine yeah. and politely had not told them what he thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Is just replace your, your crops with American wines is a bit too easy. You know, if it produces bad quality wine, then it's a bit of a waste of time for everyone. Mm. But what his trip did was it resulted in the idea of grafting becoming more favourable. This is something that, that Lallemann had been going on about for years. In fact, mm. there was a congress in 1872, I think, where he bought loads of his American hybrids to display and show off. He yeah. said, look at how wonderful they are. But of course, the wine still tasted like cack. Right. But Planchon was now recommending this. So testing of varieties began, but they just they weren't particularly effective. So in fact, one of the vines you mentioned earlier, Concord, mm. was recommended by Riley and Planchon. But unfortunately, they picked the wrong vine because they hadn't done enough proper testing on it. Yeah. So Concord was actually as fatally vulnerable to them, <laughs> to the aphid, as the European vine was. So it caused a lot of anger and disappointment with the French farmers who suddenly decided to try and grow. And it wasn't until 1876 that Jean-Henri Fabry reported uh, on the success of his grafted vines, which were a different American variety. But it was still producing wine that tasted horrible. Yeah. And as we said, the French by this stage were importing wine from Italy, Portugal, who were also starting to feel the effects of the bug. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we call it the, the great French wine blight, but it, it didn't just stop at the French borders. It spread throughout Europe. Mm. Um, so eventually everyone was uh, having issues. By 1865, it was in Portugal, mm. in the Douro Valley. In 1871, it hit Switzerland. By the end of the 1870s, both Spain and Germany were riddled with it. You don't really think of Swiss wine, do you? You don't really think of Irish wine, but that's what they really? also reported um, it as well. Yeah. Um, by 1891, half of Sicily was gone. Oh, really? So it, it across the sea as well? Yeah. 
Uh, then came the rest of the world. 1875 saw Australia report an infection near Guillaume. It also struck California, who'd been using European vines as well. And bizarrely, they attributed it, <laughs> attributed it to Europeans' plague <laughs> rather than realising it was actually their own bug. Enter Pierre-Marie Alexis Millardet, hmm. a bored professor of botany who entered the stage in 1874 and began to assess the level of vine damage, which no one else had really bothered to do, not even Planchon. Hmm. He went across every single European and American variety to trying to determine the resistance of each one hmm. to the bug. So he was the sort of man behind the grafting that would eventually lead to the solution. But hmm. what is grafting? I'm glad you asked. Grafting was, at the time, uh, considered a revolutionary solution. So essentially... You take the upper portion of a prized French vine and you take the rootstock of a, um, an aphid-resistant American vine and you stick them together. That's it. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of as simple as that if you actually want to get into it. But that, that, that's essentially it. Is, is In theory, you have the resistance of the American vine and you have the, the quality fruit of the French vine. So it's kind of best of both worlds, if you can pull it off properly. It, it's quite labour-intensive to actually produce, you know, a viable plant at the end of this. And it was quite, as I say, relatively revolutionary. So there was a fair bit of trial and error involved in getting it right. Yes, yeah, so from about 1880, Pierre worked uh, alongside his colleague, the, the Marquis Charles de Grasset, in the Herald region producing over 800 interspecies crossings. Whilst the taste was still lacking, mm. it was an important groundwork for what was to come. And the testing just, just carried on. All the while, the French government continued to search for an insecticide mm. and implemented a ban on the importation of American vines that would only prove to delay the eventual remedy. And as you said, it devastated communities, lifestyles, which led to a, uh, not just the snake oil salesmen, but bootleggers who were making cheap alternatives to wine from dried raisins, mm. usually used to make cakes. So they would import massive amounts of raisins from the Middle East. Yeah. And suddenly that import shot up <laughs> by quite a large <laughs> amount, um, leading to an 1879 edict in September banning mm. the brewing of a backstreet wine. Six months later, they reversed it because they were just <laughs> desperate for wine. Um, and it actually became a sort of export to the point where the Times said it was passable. <laughs> but by 1884... One million hectares of French vineyards had been destroyed. Mm. 664,000 were in the grip of the blight. And only 53,000 had been replanted with testing American vines. So there was a Pierre Vialla, a professor of the School of Archaeology, a professor of the School of Agriculture at Montpellier, mm. was chosen by a committee to find American vines that would speed up the process. Yeah. Uh, so so Millardet was looking for the one holy grail that would work everywhere and it would all taste great and it would be amazing. Mm. But he was sort of, again, as we said, looking for a holy grail that didn't exist. Viala mm. uh, met Thomas Munson, an mm. American in 1886, who had extensive knowledge of American fauna. And uh, uh, Munson told him about these specific uh, native grapes to Texas, which closely matched the limestone content of soils in French vineyards. However, it was slightly premature as it proved difficult to propagate. <laughs> Millardet had also spotted these grapes a, a few years before to make new hybrids and through a process of trial and error produced something called 41V a chalet, mm. Berlin, Berlin Dairy Cross, which he unveiled in 1887. Gradually over the years, 
these these hybridizations, these grafting processes, it was trial and error, it was testing, but they were starting to work. Crops were starting to come back to life. The taste was sort of getting there. Mm. It was a, it was like a you know it's not like you mix it once and it's great. You have to keep mixing it over and over again. Imagine it's a bit like um, do you remember a few years ago when they reformulated dairy milk and everyone tastes everyone said it tasted awful, it didn't taste anything like dairy milk. And now when you have dairy milk, it just tastes like dairy milk. Well, this is it. Like, do people just get used to the flavour of the wine changing, or, or did they, you know? Was it actually getting better? So in 1880, the import of alien vines suddenly became legal again mm. as hybridization was proving to be successful. And according to the French Ministry of Agriculture, about a third of France's vineyards had been transplanted or grafted onto, hydro- onto, onto these hybrid vines. Mm. It only really truly became fully accepted after uh, Dumas, who we mentioned died in 1885. Mm. He was adamant to his dying breath. It was not, you know, the bug was a symptom. All right. You know, the disease was still slowly working. It didn't actually reach Paris, I think, until the, the 1900s. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It mainly afflicted the south region of France, the Midi region. Mm. You know, Montpellier, Languedoc. No one cared. Like in the north, they were like, screw you guys, we're fine. So this, this was out, out in the sticks as far as Paris was concerned. Exactly, yeah. You know, but gradually the grafting helped restore the land. After 20 years of anguish and effort, some France in the last decade of the 19th century was slowly coming back to life. By 1895, over 1.7 million hectares had been transplanted. Mm. The Americans had saved France. The costs had been great, though, as you said. Whole communities shattered, massive mounting debts. By the mid-1890s, most of the reconstituted vineyards were also producing a flood of wine. Mm-hmm. Too much wine. Ah, the opposite so the, problem. The price of wine had s- collapsed. In the 1880s, a hectolitre was worth 30 francs. By 1900, it was 11. Ah. Um, I mean... As, as you sort of mentioned earlier, while a solution had been developed, it wasn't an instant fix. It, it took many, many years and a lot of labour to actually restore these vineyards. It wasn't like last time where it was a case of just apply sulphur and the problem goes away. Um, and this, this, this collapse of the economy and led to lots of social discontent and it led to the 1907 revolt of, of Lang- Languedoc, which we won't go into too much because it's, it's an interesting story it's a whole other story in itself rather but essentially it was a bunch of very distressed french laborers led by a cafe owner marceline albert uh, who began fighting for the defense of natural wine against fake imports or fake wines being made from raisins etc mm. it actually led to um the arrest of one of a, a regional mayor and his imprisonment and the, the death of quite a few uh, people suppressed by the police all oh, right albert had to flee and spent the rest of his days in Algeria. Mm. But they, they, they gathered hundreds of thousands of people to protest. They effectively uh, caused a state shutdown by refusing to collect tax revenue or so, work. It did, however, lead to the 29th of June law, which made sugar sales stricter, banned the sale of certain chemicals and fake booze, and uh, exclusively defined what wine was as, as the exclusive product of an alcohol fermentation of the fresh grape or juice of a fresh grape. I think uh, we probably mentioned this, but the aphid was never really beaten. It is still around today. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's no insecticide for it. In fact, the yeah. prize still lies unclaimed after all these centuries. Yeah, because they never actually eradicated the pest. All they did was find a way of working around it with the resistant rootstocks. Just going back to some of the key figures we mentioned. So Leo Lalleman, mm. who was apportioned blame for importing the 
the blight in the first place. Uh, he tried to take claim for the, the grafting idea, but the committee was reluctant to give him any sort of reward, especially to a man they thought primarily to blame for the infestation in the first place. Right. He died in 1897, still fighting for his case to claim the reward money. And his son also persisted in trying to claim it. Never came to anything, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the commission itself to deal with the bug wound down in 1900. Seeing the problem now resolved with the, the grafting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jules Planchon had died, weirdly enough, on the 1st of April in 1888. He did die in a strange way, didn't he? No, hang on, no, I'm thinking of Riley. Fell off his bike. Yes, sadly, Riley fell off his bike at the age of only 51. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously, uh, Riley had a successful career afterwards as well uh, when he realised that a, a parasite was damaging the California citrus industry. And looking at it, he found that the natural predator of this parasite was a certain kind of beetle so by releasing the beetle uh, it would then prey upon the parasite and save the trees um it seems kind of obvious now but at the time this was quite a novel way of controlling pests it does raise a question of what then eats the beetle yeah i'm reminded of that fraser episode where he gets a cricket in his bum, <laughs> and then his dad's like what if we release like a, a ferret or something it'll eat it and he's like well what do we get to eat the ferret but just coming back to Planchon, uh, he, he was kind of revered and is still remembered quite fondly. In fact, a bust of him now sits outside Montpellier train station. The grafting of French vines onto American rootstock not only saved the French wine industry from the blight, but also led to uh, diversification of the types of wine produced. And this in itself had a profound effect on the wine industry, leading to the creation of new wine styles and the expansion of the market. There are some original French vines that are still in existence and, and were not grafted or affected by phylloxera. Yeah, um, I think they're on the south coast somewhere, aren't they? Yeah, they're owned by Bollinger. Yeah. That must be some very expensive wine. Today, almost all the world's wine has American roots. This ranges from both the affordable wines that you and I might drink to the more high-end stuff that you and I... will never drink. We'll never drink. <laughs> I think you know what time it is now, don't you? It's time for the quiz. Okay, so question number one. Now, we spoke about Charles Valentine Riley and mm-hmm. how he was able to use his expertise in entomology to help combat the blight. Riley was also a prolific writer, but mm-hmm. how many works did he publish throughout his lifetime? So was it A, 600, B, 1800, or C, 2400? That's a good question. I don't remember reading this about him. Uh, I'm going to go down the middle. I'm going to go 1800. No. Riley made over 2400 publications, wow. uh, including The American Entomologist, 1868 to 80, and Insect Life, 1889 to 94. That's riveting. Anyway, um, question number two. So, where would wine be without cork? All over your shoes, that's where. But... <laughs> oh, dear me. I thought you'd like that. Uh, but, which country is the largest producer of cork in the world? Is it A, Ireland? Is it B, Argentina? Or is it C, Portugal? It's Portugal. 
very quick there. Well, it comes from Portugal. Yeah, Portugal. Cork is one of Portugal's biggest and most important exports. It actually produces more than 50% of the world's cork supply. And it's not all just for keeping your wine in. Cork is also used in fashion, construction, and even, dare I say it, flooring. I know. Mm. Um, so do you want me to do that more dramatically? No. I think, I, it's, I think it's C, Jeremy. I thought the first time was fine. I mean, yeah, no, I, one of my, one of my uh, close friends is Portuguese. Oh, so he uh, bangs on about cork all the time. No, he doesn't care about cork or wine, to be honest. Oh, okay. He um, sounds like a terrible Portuguese he's a man. terrible Portuguese. He doesn't like football either. Um, but, but no, no, every time I go to Portugal, like, every, you see in the tourist shops everywhere, cork. Like, I've got a cork postcard, which is a terrible way to send a postcard. Oh, but, wow. That is, I mean, I don't mind cork, but there is such a thing as too much. Corking stuff, you might say. Did, also, did you put Ireland as an option purely because they've got a place called Cork? I did. Right. <laughs> I, I I was hoping on some level that you would think, hmm, well, maybe they named the material after the town. Anyway, question number three. What is the term for the process of fermentation in winemaking? Is it A, vitrification? Is it B, vinification? Or is it C, vindaluification? <laughs> It's A or B. I just can't remember what it is. Uh, I think it's vitrification. No, it's vinification. Uh, and as a side note, a person who makes wine is also known as a vintner. Oh, of course. Yeah. So oh, I was being. I, I knew it was one of them. I just couldn't remember which one it was. Uh, vitrification. I think it's something to do with rubber. Ah, you are right. Yes. I. I was stupid there. Yeah. Question number four. Now. As we both know, when you're getting ready for a night out with the lads, you often reach for your old favourite Blue Nun. Now, <laughs> for anyone not acquainted with Blue Nun... Hell Mary. For anyone not acquainted with Blue Nun, it's a German white wine with a bit of a budget-conscious reputation, uh, enjoyed primarily by students and people trying to relive the 1970s. I don't need to tell you this. You already know this. <laughs> okay. The question is, however... How wild a night are you actually going to have? What's the alcohol content of Blue Nun by volume? I have no idea. Is it A, 10%? Is it B, 30%? Or is it C, 45%? It's what, one can? Uh, by volume. What does that mean? It means for every, for every measure of, that, of Blue Nun, how much of it is alcohol? What percentage of your bottle of Blue Nun is alcohol? A bottle of Blue Nun? Yeah. I, I, you... I, would, I would say 10%. 10%? That's correct. Sadly, your old faithful may not be quite the pre-drink bargain you may have thought. I was going to say wine is usually around 8, 6 to 8%, isn't it? Uh, wine's normally about 15, I think. Is it? Yeah. Oh, maybe I'm, drink oh, maybe I'm thinking of like... My mum only drinks like the really low percentage alcohol which is like three or four so i figured it might be double that oh like mother like son <laughs> yeah yeah uh, is it lamborghini lamb lamb lambresca lamb that's it lamb i was gonna say lamborghini <laughs> i had a i had a housemate in uh, at uni and, and he loved lambresca came in a giant bottle yeah and it's because it's basically grape juice <laughs> yeah it's here's your last one question number five a tradition known as beaujolais day is often celebrated at midnight on the third Thursday of November, uh, whereby pubs, bars and restaurants across the world crack open the latest vintage of Beaujolais Nouveau. What's all that about then? Is it A, that's just the earliest they're allowed to sell it by law? 
Is it B, a celebration held in honour of France's national poet, Jack Privert? Or is it C, nobody knows, but it's a good excuse to have a drink at breakfast? I'm going to go with A. It is A. Beaujolais Nouveau is a famously young wine from the Beaujolais region of France, which has unfairly garnered a bit of reputation among wine snobs for being a bit shit. Uh, unfairly, I would say. Apparently it's all right. Uh, legend has it that the origins of opening the new wine dates back to growers celebrating the end of the harvest in the 19th century. Eventually, winemakers saw an opportunity to capitalise on the fast production of the wine by making it a race to see who could get their first bottles to Paris. Interestingly... Uh, as a tradition, it's quite prominent in Swansea. It did sound familiar, but I don't know if it was attributed to that because there are, there are traditions like that for other alcohols as well. Yeah, so, I mean, the um, it seems a bit weird to honour a poet without naming something after him. So yeah, I um, I used to live on the Isle of Wight for a while, and the the local pub down there used to do a Beaujolais day. It was like a big thing for them, and they would do Beaujolais breakfast, and you'd go and you'd have your fry up, and they'd just bring like jugs of. <laughs> Of cheap red wine, round. <laughs> and um, and all all the locals would just be completely pissed by about ten o'clock. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think that uh, with that little bit of excitement at the end brings us to the uh, the close of this particular episode. It. Sell it, sell it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you've found it. Um, we hope you found it a strong, pleasant bouquet. Yes. With a rich aroma of knowledge and very good, a splash of sexiness. Got to have that splash of sexiness. Mm. I did think that could be our tagline, you know. Rather than hodgepodge <laughs> history podcast, we could just put a splash of sexiness and see. <laughs> it always sounds a bit unhygienic, uh, but we, we won't delve into that. <laughs> I'm thinking like brute or something. Oh, okay, not what I was thinking. Not what you're thinking. Thank you for listening. Yes, please do subscribe. We're in all the usual places. And do get in touch. We're info at thegalimofri.show. We'd love to hear your feedback. All that's left is to play the uh, the clue for the next episode. The king is speaking to you. There are a million good reasons why you should support the national government. Mr. Noel Noel was the teacher in the school giving London a London at last. The Jarrow Crusaders must be glad to have reached the end of their 300-mile trek, despite the rain in town. Living in Europe these days is profoundly discouraging. Nazism and fascism are gaining ground everywhere. Let's know 